thing. We are, as again, as I said, we are starting a new series called um, Deadly Viper Character Assassins. And this morning, we're going to be talking about the assassin of amped emotions. Um, and when I was a kid, well, probably not really just when I was a kid, I probably still kind of love ninjas. Um, but I really loved ninjas when I was a kid. And my mom, um, much to my mom's disappointment, my dad actually got me some throwing stars and I, was, I would like throw them into the trees in the yard. And like, it's a wonder I still have both of my eyes. But, uh, but I was really in love with ninjas. I loved all those cool weapons that they had and I wanted to be able to sneak up and kill my enemies in a hundred different ways without them ever knowing I was there, you know, and all of those cool kind of things. I really badly wanted the, the outfit, you know, like the, you know, the, the whole thing. And, and my parents never would go for that. I'm not sure why, but uh, I was really disappointed. I guess maybe I should buy myself one now. Um, <laughs> But anyway, uh, I thought ninjas were incredible, and, and ninjas are incredible, and I brought a picture this morning to show you just how incredible ninjas are. This is the 28th annual ninja parade, and some of you will get it later. Um, but ninjas are amazing, right? Um, and that has nothing to do with what I'm preaching this morning, other than I just really think ninjas are awesome, and we have a really cool ninja on the stage. But over the next several weeks, we're going to be talking about some assassins that are just as deadly, just as cunning, just as subtle as any ninja. Uh, but these assassins um, are out to destroy your character. They're out to destroy your witness for Christ. They're out to destroy your relationships. Ultimately, they're out to destroy you. And today we're going to be talking about the assassin of amped emotions. When I was about 14 or 15, uh, all of you who were that age at one point probably remember, that's the age when all of your hormones are completely out of whack. You're trying really hard to be an adult, but most days you still feel like a kid. And even though you don't understand a single thing that's happening inside of your body, somehow you think you know everything. Nobody else, just me, right? Okay. Um, and so it was around that age uh, that I remember I got in this huge fight with my stepmom. Her name is Ramona, and she's probably the sweetest woman on earth. Um, but I was a 14 or 15-year-old boy. And uh, anyway, I got in this really big argument with her. And, and it ended with um, her getting so frustrated with me that she just walked out of the door and got in the car and left the house. Like, it was, it was a bad deal. And I was just furious, right? And, and I, she walked out the door and, I, and I'm telling on myself and I'm gonna like lower everyone's opinion of me immediately. Uh, but she walked out the door and I was standing in the kitchen and I turned the corner to go down the hallway toward my bedroom and just I lost it, right? And boom, I punched this huge hole in the wall. And so instantly I went from rage to abject terror because I knew in that moment that my life was about to end because my dad was going to kill me. And so I waited for my dad to get home and uh, he got home and I confessed to what I had done and, and then I waited for my last breath. And... Uh, my dad's response was not what I expected at all. My dad looked at me and uh, he said, I bet you feel stupid. And I said, yes, sir. Yes, sir, I do. And he said, good, you should. 
Now fix the hole in the wall. And so I had to repair the hole in the wall. Not only did I have to repair the hole in the wall, part of the requirement then too was that I repair the relationship with my stepmom. That I take responsibility for what I had done and that I make amends for the things that I had wronged, right? The things that I had broken. And so uh, I, learned, I learned a little bit about um, spackling and about painting and about um, eating some crow and admitting when you're wrong. But that's what amped emotions do to us, right? They make us do foolish things. And in fact, in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 17, it says this, a man of quick temper acts foolishly and a man of evil devices is hated. Harriet Lerner, who's a psychologist, she said this, anger is a signal and one worth listening to. See, because most of the time, this is really about that. There's something else at work, and we need to be mindful of those things. You see, in, in my life, for example, in the story that I told, there were underlying issues at work in my adolescent body, right? I was dealing with my parents' divorce from only a few years earlier, and having a new woman in the house uh, was, was different, right? And it was, it was hard. Um, of course, I had all these changing, raging hormones that were going on and all that other list of teenage angsts, right? Those things that we, you know, we all deal with at that age. It wasn't my stepmom that was the problem. But my anger toward her was misplaced, right? Because it really wasn't her. It was other things that were going on. But because I chose to point my anger at her, because I chose to make her the issue, then I did foolish things, right? Uh, and those foolish things, those actions had the potential to destroy my relationship with her, to, to damage my family's dynamic, and to leave me feeling empty and even worse than I had previously, you see, when we don't pay attention to the issues in our heart, the assassin of amped emotions is lurking in wait to destroy us, to destroy our reputation, to destroy our effectiveness for the kingdom of God. It's an interesting thing. Studies show that when we are angry, we think we're right. And the more angry we get, the more right we think we are. And so what happens in these times of amped emotions is that we are unable to see both sides of a situation. We are unable to see where we might be at fault. We're unable, or really, probably more accurately, we are unwilling to look at the ways in which we may be contributing to the problem, that we may be acting out foolishly. And interestingly enough, it goes even further that when we are in that kind of state of emotional um, unrest, we not only... Uh, are unable to see ourselves properly, we, we, we then begin to not see the other person, the other party as a person. We see them as an object or an obstacle that we have to overcome. And so humanity gets lost in all of that. The image of God gets lost in all that. See, because we are people who are created in the image of God. But when we have these amped emotions and when we don't have those emotions in their proper place and in their proper perspective, then we, we begin to see people not, as the, not in the way that God sees them and not as image bearers of Christ, but as obstacles to us. And then as Proverbs says, we act foolishly. See, this assassin wants us overreacting to petty and insignificant things. 
the argument that I had with my, my stepmom, um, I can't tell you what it was about. Probably a week later, I couldn't have told you what it was about. It's really not a matter of being years removed from it. It's the fact that it was probably something so insignificant that even a week later, I would not have recalled what the argument was over. Right? And we've all had those things, haven't we? I mean, maybe for you, it's, uh, you know, he doesn't squeeze the toothpaste too bright. You know, like, uh, I don't know about you, but I'm like an, I'm an end squeezer. Like it's got to all come out evenly. I'm really like, you know, I'm really OCD about my toothpaste for whatever reason. And Jennifer's like, you know, just grab the tube, you know, and you know, in those little bitty things, right? Those are the things that really get us. Most of the time we don't, we don't argue about the big things. And I'm not just talking about my family. I'm talking about all of us. Most of the time on the really big issues, we rally together. We can get on the same page together for those things, right? When it's big things, you know, we, we, can, we can get together, but it's the petty, the little things, the, the things that are really insignificant that for whatever reason we have a hard time letting go of or we have a hard time dealing with and those pet peeves as we call them. So this assassin wants us overreacting to petty and insignificant things. He wants us to embarrass ourselves in front of our friends, our family, and our coworkers. He wants us to act out, right? The, the old go postal thing, right? And, and we see this. It's, it's, it's rampant right, in our society, right? It's, it's epidemic. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember a few years ago in Philadelphia, uh, there, there was a news story. So there was, tra there was um, construction on the interstate and uh, traffic had been condensed down to one lane. And so there's a big you know, line as, it, as the way it happens, you know, and you have to wait your turn. And, and there was this gentleman in line who apparently had been waiting patiently for his turn to get through construction. And uh, just as he was about to get into the construction zone and pass through, uh, some guy comes up on, the, on the, um, the shoulder of the road and cuts in front of him and darts through the construction area and, you know, and apparently turns around and, and smirks at him and tells him he's number one. And, um, and so here's what happens, right? The guy who gets cut off at the next intersection, gets out of his car and shoots and kills the guy who cut him off. Right? Over getting cut off in traffic. Now, I hope that none of us have had that extreme a reaction, but the truth still holds out that it's the petty and the insignificant things, and it's the way in which we respond to those things that, that really has great impact on our lives and on our relationships. And really, anger isn't the only emotion in this assassin's arsenal. In, in, uh, in Judges uh, chapter 11, there's this guy named Jephthah. Uh, I don't know if you guys have ever read this story. It's an interesting story. Jephthah, uh, he had some half-brothers, uh, no, but his mom was a prostitute. And so he was kind of looked down at by his brothers, uh, he was, you know, uh, as they used to say when I was a kid, the redheaded stepchild. That, that really went over well with me, by the way. Um, so, uh, but yeah, he was, you know, they, they ostracized him. And when he got old enough uh, to be on his own, they kicked him out of the house. He said, you can't be here anymore. You're not a member of our family, uh, you know, and so they kicked him out. And so Jephthah had this really huge chip on his shoulder about his brothers. But apparently Jephthah was really good in a scrap. 
And so they were having trouble with their neighbors, right? They're, and so they come to Jephthah and they say, hey, Jephthah, we need your help. Can you lead us into battle against our neighbors here? They're giving us some issues. And Jephthah sees an opportunity, right? And so all the bitterness that he's been holding on to and this grudge that he's been holding against his brothers and maybe those feelings of inferiority that he's been dealing with and all of that stuff, he sees his opportunity. And so he says to them, I will gladly lead you into battle, but if we win, you have to make me ruler over all of you. I'm going to be the chief, right? I'm going to lead. I'm, I'm the guy. If we win this battle, I'm the guy. And his brothers agree to that for whatever reason. Uh, again, probably because he was really good at what he did. So here goes the story, right? Jephthah, because he is so desperate to get some recognition, he's so desperate to be validated. He's been beaten down his whole life, and he he's looks at his brothers, and he says, these, these, are, these guys are the issue. This is the problem. And so he prays, right? He says, God... If you will give me victory in this battle, I will sacrifice as a burnt offering to you the first thing that comes out of my house when I get home. What a foolish vow to make, right? Because he's got all these amped emotions. Well, guess what? It wasn't the family dog that came running out of the house. It wasn't a lamb. It was his oldest daughter. And so when we are governed by those amped emotions, we do foolish things. And again, it's not just anger that's, that's in this assassin's arsenal, right? Amped loneliness often compels us to be in relationships we shouldn't be in. Amped fear and anxiety paralyze us and attack our ability to trust God. Amped sorrow debilitates us and isolates us from community. And so we see people who shut themselves away because they. So how do we combat this assassin, right? That's the question. That's the real issue where the rubber meets the road, right? Well, the first thing we have to do is change our perspective, we have to recognize that our battle isn't against other people or really even against our circumstance necessarily. Ephesians chapter six, verse 12 says this. It says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We have to recognize that the issue is not the other person or the issue is not even really the circumstance or the situation, that the issue is much larger than that. It's a spiritual thing. It's, it's how I am able to respond to those situations that really define what will happen. You see, it's, it's what's supposed to separate us as followers of Christ from the rest of the world is not that we don't have 
problems. It's not that we don't face these same issues. It's not that we don't feel these same emotions, but it's the way in which we are called to respond to them that should define the difference, right? We should be operating on a different frequency, as it were. The, all the radio waves, right? If you go out and get in your car, every station is flying through the air at this very moment, right? Uh, this microphone that I'm talking through is on a specific frequency, right? And it's going through the air, but not everyone hears what I am saying, right? It doesn't broadcast the way that a radio station would. Or if you get in your car and you turn the dial to a certain number, it picks up a certain station. So for us as followers of Christ, it's not that we aren't receiving all of the same information that's coming to everyone else. It's that our dial should be turned differently. We should be receiving on a different frequency so that the response that comes from us is different. So the, we have to change our perspective and recognize that the battle is not a physical one. We're not wrestling against flesh and blood. The worst thing that we do, right, and we all have a tendency to do this, the worst thing that we can do in these situations is begin to point the finger and lay blame somewhere else. Because it instantly builds a wall between us and whoever the other person might be or whatever is going on. It, just, it completely builds a barrier. It shuts us off, right? Which goes against what the scriptures would tell us. God is a God who seeks after reconciliation, right? When we start to blame, we immediately shut off that possibility. So God calls us to react differently. If anyone in scripture ever had a right to hold a grudge. It was Joseph, right? Now, I don't know if you guys know Joe's whole story, uh, so I'll kind of go through it real quickly, right? Uh, Joe, was, Joe was the youngest of, uh, at that point, 11 brothers, and uh, he was also his dad's favorite, and so his brothers were really jealous of him. His dad gave him this sweet coat, and his brothers were jealous of his coat, and they were jealous of the way his dad treated him. And so they cooked up this scheme, and so Joseph goes out into the field to meet his brothers one day, and they ambush him, steal his coat, throw him in a pit, and sell him into slavery. Then they, then they, uh, they stage it to look like he was attacked by an animal, take his coat back to his dad, torn and bloody, and make his dad think that he's dead. And so then Joseph is sold into slavery. These Ishmaelites that bought him, they take him into Egypt and they resell him to somebody else. And then at, while he's in Egypt, locked away from his family, Joseph is accused of things that he didn't do. He's thrown into prison. He spends a large portion of his life in jail unfairly. And then eventually, uh, because God has given Joseph this ability to interpret dreams, he winds up finding himself standing in front of the Pharaoh and interpreting the dreams for Pharaoh and telling him there's going to be a famine in the land. And Pharaoh says, you're a pretty smart guy. I think I'll put you in charge. And so Joseph ends up being the second in command in all of Egypt next to Pharaoh. It would have been really easy for Joseph to miss out on what God was trying to accomplish. Because here's what happens, right? His family's back in, in Canaan, and the famine is affecting them too, and they hear that there's food in Egypt, so their dad goes, hey, why don't you fellas go down to Egypt, buy some food, uh, I'll wait here. So his brothers go to Egypt, and Joseph is in charge of all the food, 
They don't recognize him, but he recognizes them. Now, for most of us, the opportunity we would probably have taken would be to exact our revenge, right? It would not have ended well for Joseph's brothers if, if I was Joseph, just if I'm really honest with myself, right? But that's not Joseph's response at all. In Genesis chapter 45, it says, so Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. This is an amazing response to me. Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you for a remnant, or for you a remnant on the earth, and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here. Isn't that amazing? I mean, and here's the thing. His brothers had every intention of sending him there. His brothers never wanted to see him again. They, they knew exactly what they were doing. They had evil intentions in their heart. They didn't think they would ever see Joseph again. And so Joseph knew that they had, with purpose, sold him. And yet he says, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. You see, here's the thing. When we change our perspective and we understand that God is trying to accomplish something much greater in us than we can even fathom, then it helps us to respond differently to those situations. When I can see that person who's done me wrong or antagonizing me or the, the situation that is surrounding me when I can see that through, through a bigger lens and go, God, I may not even understand what you are accomplishing, but help me to know that you are here with me. That's when beautiful things can begin to happen. I'm not trying to discount the wrong that may have been done to you. This, not only do we commit sin, but sometimes we have sin committed against us and it affects us. We live in a broken, fallen world and there are, there are repercussions and there are fallout, right? I mean, Joseph was in prison for a large part of his life for nothing he did. We have to choose how we will respond to that. What we will be defined by. You see, Jesus hanging on the cross said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And that, that's a, a hard-earned response for us. But perspective changes everything. There was a story that I heard about a man who lived in New York City and he had never traveled outside of the city. He'd never flown. And he had uh, 
some occasion to fly out of New York City. So he flew out of the city and, and took care of whatever business he needed to take care of. And then he flew back to New York. And on his way back into the city, they were flying over the city in the airplane and he saw a building and he was really impressed with the architecture of the building. He thought, man, that is an incredible building. When I get home, I'm going to have to find that building and, uh, and, and, and admire it. And so, uh, so he got home and to his amazement, he found that the building was just around the corner from his apartment and he had walked by it every day of his life but he had never seen it because of his perspective. The same is true for us. And we say, God, help change my perspective. Help me to see the way that you see. Help me not to be governed by my emotions and my immediate response to those things, Lord, but help me to see the way that you see. Here's the good news in all of this, right? God hasn't left us alone to try to accomplish that in our own strength. So let's look at the example of Jesus. So why do we look to Jesus, right? Hebrews chapter two, verse 18 gives us, a, gives us the answer. It says, because he himself has suffered when tempted and he is able to help those who are being tempted. We look to him because he's able to help us, not just because he lives out a great example for us, but because he helps us in our need. Jesus experienced anger, right? If we look at Mark chapter 11, and I'll try to wrap up here real quickly. Mark chapter 11, verse 15, this is when Jesus is coming into Jerusalem um, and he goes to the temple, right? It says, and they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers, and the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. So here's what's happening here. We, we, we sometimes get this impression that Jesus is running them out because they're buying and selling things in the temple. And there's, there's, a, there's a, a smidgen of truth to that, but it wasn't that Jesus was upset because they were buying and selling these things. Because in fact, if you go back into the Levitical law, if you go back into the Levitical code, there, there were commandments that said that they had to be there to sell these things. It said that they, not only were they to sell them, the pigeons and the lambs and the money changers were, to, were there because people were coming from all over the Roman Empire and they had to be able to buy and sell in Jerusalem. So not only were they supposed to be selling these things, but the law actually uh, set the price for them as well. For a pigeon, you'll pay this much and for a dove, you'll pay this much and for a lamb, you'll pay this much. And so it wasn't the fact that, that these people were there taking care of that business for the temple. But here's what was happening. It says... Uh, that he entered the temple. So here, the way that the temple was set up, there was, uh, if you, the, so there's the, there's outside the walls of the temple, the kind of, and then when you, there's the kind of the first layer you get in, it's called the temple court. And it's kind of an open area. And then uh, as you go further in, you know, fewer and fewer people can go until you get to the Holy of Holies when only the one guy who drew the straw and, you know, and so only the chief priest. And so uh, it kind of, fewer people can go in the further in you get. Uh, well, the temple court 
which is where they had all of these money changers and, and buyers and sellers set up, was the only place that Gentiles were allowed to go in the temple. So if you were a Gentile and you had placed faith in the God of Israel. You believed that the one true God was God. You were a God-fearer is what they called those folks back in those days. Uh, if you were a God-fearer and you were a Gentile, the only place that you could go to pray, the only place that you could go to worship, the only place that you could go was the temple court. You couldn't go any further because you weren't a Jew. Right? And so what, the, what they were doing was they were intentionally setting up all of this market in the temple court so that the Gentiles were being prevented from coming to worship. They were excluding others who weren't like them from being able to come and worship God. And so what Jesus is upset about is not the fact that they're buying and selling. His anger is not, uh, his anger is not toward individual people. His anger is toward the injustice that's being done. His anger is toward the fact that, that there are people who are wanting to come to God who are unable to because they are being excluded by those who would call themselves insiders. And so the difference between Jesus' anger and the way we often experience anger is that Jesus' anger was, was toward those things that angered the heart of God. It was toward the injustice. It was toward the problem. And so what often happens with us is that we get angry at the person rather than being angry with the situation that's occurring and the fact that relationship is being severed or the fact that injustice is being done. Our anger is unrighteous because it is pointed toward people rather than pointed toward evil. Does that make sense? So Jesus' anger differed from ours in that way, but Jesus experienced anger. And God's intent for us is that we experience it as well. All of human emotion is within the scope of God's purpose and plan for us. He created it. But again, it's, it's how we express it that makes all the difference. Jesus experienced fear and anxiety. We see him in Luke chapter 22 in the Garden of Gethsemane. Knowing that the cross is coming, he prays and says, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And that's what often separates us as well from Jesus in this regard. Is that we simply often pray, Lord, get me out of here. And we're reluctant to follow it up with the, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You see, Jesus was willing to do the difficult thing in order to accomplish the purpose that God had for him. Jesus experienced sorrow. Um, his heart was broken over Jerusalem. In Matthew chapter 23, it says that he looked out over the city and he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I have longed to gather you to me. You would not have me. And then we see him as well. His friend Lazarus dies and he stands outside of the tomb of Lazarus and the Bible says that Jesus wept. We've not been left alone to try to accomplish all of this in our own strength. We look to Jesus and we say, Lord, I see your example. And then here is, here's the amazing thing, right? 
Not only does he give us the example that we are to follow, but he promises us through his Holy Spirit that he will strengthen and enable us to do just that. He said, these things you will do and greater than these in my name. Let's look at Romans chapter eight. Paul talks about this very thing. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is a big, big key to to all of this, to a lot of this. Because what often happens with us is that when we do something foolish or when we express emotions in ways that are not uh, honoring to God or in ways that are sinful or, you know, uh, that drives us back towards shame and condemnation. But what Paul tells us here is there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the response for us when we mess up is to, should be not condemnation, which drives us further away from God, but conviction, which draws us to God. And we go, God, I blew it. Well, Father, I, am, I need you to help me in this. And his promise is that he will, right? He says, uh, so there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to tell us why, right? For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So the requirements of the law have been fulfilled by Jesus, right? Uh, And so the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And here's the good part, right? You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. For you and I, for those of us who God by his grace has captured our hearts. The promise for us is that we are no longer in the flesh, but we are in the spirit. And he goes on, he says, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You see, when the Spirit of God resides in us, here's the amazing promise, right? He says, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. So I don't want you to hear this teaching today. I don't want you to hear this sermon today and be disheartened and be discouraged or think I will never be able to do that. What I want you today to hear me saying to you is be encouraged because the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you.
what God calls us to do is simply submit and surrender to his process in our lives and say, God, help me. I would love to tell you that the, the story that I told you about me as a 14 or 15 year old boy punching a hole in the wall was the, the only instance of a lack of self-control ever in my life. <laughs> Um, but around that same age, God really began to deal with me about my temper. I, I had a really pretty, pretty hot temper. Um, and, and God began to deal with me about it. I began to feel really convicted about the way I reacted to things. And so I started to pray. And uh, I, I don't know how long it was, but I, I prayed every day for a while. God help me. And I just remember there was one day in, in my room. Um, and what had preceded this was that I, um, I, had, I had hit my little brother actually with a yard rake. Um, like full on baseball. But anyway, um, that's another story. But, but that was the preceding incident and I was in my room and, uh, and I was praying about my temper. And something just broke that day like in me. just something changed now that's not to say I've never experienced anger since that day I still do right and there's still time there are still days that I have to go stop <laughs> but what I can tell you is this from that day forward my response has been different. It just has. And that's not anything that I can take any credit for, right? There's, I, I can't tell you anything other than to say God did a work in me. And so when I preach this to you today and when I talk to you about these things, it's not, it's not just words on a page to me. It's, it's not just something that I give uh, intellectual assent to. What I can tell you is that I have experienced the reality and the truth of this in my own life that God can and does and will respond to our cries for help and he will help us to live out this life in the way that he has commanded us to and in the way that he has created us to live it and in ways that are honoring to him and in ways that bring praise and glory to his name and not shame. He will do those things for us because he he loves us and he is a good father and his desire for us is that we have the best life possible. That's, that's not about our comfort, by the way. That's about us being made in the image of Jesus. 
seeing life in the way that God sees life and responding to the brokenness of this world in the way that God responds to the brokenness of the world. And I can tell you with confidence today that I don't have all of it together. I echo what the apostle Paul says when, in, when he said, I have not attained all of these things, but this one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, I press toward what is ahead, the mark of the prize, the high calling that is in Christ Jesus. And that is his desire for you as well and for each of us that we press toward him, that we press toward Jesus and his promise in response to that. We respond to his grace and his promises that as we respond and as we press toward him, he will continue the work that he's begun in us. He'll be faithful to complete it. You and I will be made like him. It's not an if, it's a win. So, so the challenge for us today is to respond to God's initiative in our lives and say, Lord, let it be now rather than later. I am not content and I will not be satisfied simply living out life the way I have been. But God, I can't do it on my own. I need you. So here's the good news, right? For those of us who are following Christ, the good news is that his spirit resides in us and that he will continue the work that he started. And if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, the good news for you is this, that he is here calling to you and that if you will respond to his call and say, Jesus, I need you, he will immediately take up residence in your life and things can be different from today forward. So let's bow our heads, let's pray. God, I thank you for your work in us. I thank you that you are faithful to complete what you have begun. But Lord, our prayer today is, Father, let it be now rather than later. Help me not to put off another day that thing that you are speaking to me about. Lord, if there, are those, if there are people in this room today who struggle with, with their anger or they've got bitterness in their heart that they've been holding on to, this assassin is trying to kill them, to destroy their witness, to destroy their relationships, to destroy their character. Lord, we cry out to you for help. I pray for those who are here today, God, who aren't following you, who aren't Christians today that they would respond to your spirit as you're drawing them. Say, Jesus, I need you. Start your work in me today. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I wanna give you an opportunity. If that is you, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Christ and you say, Todd, I wanna begin that, that, to, that journey with Jesus today. I want my life to be his. If you'll just raise your hand, let me see who you are. I'm not gonna call you to the front, but I do wanna pray with you and for you. Uh, and we wanna have an opportunity. Thank you, I see, see you over here on, on my right. Thank you. Anyone else? Todd, I, I wanna start following Jesus today. My life, I wanna give my life to him. Thank you up there in the balcony. Thank you. Thank you over here on the right. I'll wait just a second longer. All right, so here's what I'd like to do. Uh, if I want everyone in the room to pray this prayer with those who raise their hand today. Lord Jesus, thank you 
for giving your life for me, for making a way that my sins can be forgiven and my life can be made different. I give my life to you today. I will follow you all of my days. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for calling me yours. And I thank you today that my life is different. In Jesus' name, amen. Can we, can we give God praise? So 